<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garrison from Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley. This is Postmortem. Writing books and making movies are two very different disciplines. And books and movies, though both entail telling stories, are entirely different media. Many of our most popular films are derived from literary sources, and some books are indeed quite cinematic. But because books and movies require the exercise of very different creative muscles, it's rare to find an author who is comfortable in the director's chair and vice versa. Making a movie or TV show requires the ability to command an army of artists and technicians to deliver an entertainment that has to pass through the many hands of producers, studio and network executives, advertisers, marketers, and many other minions. Writing a book usually requires sitting on your own in front of your computer and typing words. It's no wonder that creators of these media rarely overlap. But when it does happen, as in the case of today's guests, there is magic to be made. Nicholas Meyer had his first success as a best-selling novelist, which led him to adapting that first book into a screenplay, which in turn led to him taking the directorial reins for a long and distinguished career as author, screenwriter, and director. He has been able to take his own work from its origins and see it through to completion, as well as successfully adapting the work of others with vision and literary depth. I've long been a fan of Meyer's work, and now you and I will get the chance to find out just what makes him tick. Severin Films, one of the very best creators of special edition Blu-rays, presents the Euro Crypt of Christopher Lee 8 Blu-ray box set featuring new scans of 1960s classics Castle of the Living Dead, Crypt of the Vampire, Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace, Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism, The Long Lost Challenge the Devil, and the never-aired anthology series Theater Macabre hosted by Lee, plus a brand new 88-page book by Jonathan Rigby. Pre-order now at severin-films.com. That's S-E-V-E-R-I-N-Films.com. And follow Severin Films on social media for details of their forthcoming releases, including the Dungeon of Andy Milligan box set, UHD debuts of Alex de la Iglesia's Day of the Beast and Perdita Durango, Hodorowski's Santa Sangre, new special editions of Grizzly, Day of the Animals, Nosferatu in Venice, and more from Severin Films. It's a special company doing very special editions, and you better check them out. Nick, it's really great to meet you. Thanks for joining us on the I'm show. Very flattered to be invited. Well, it, it, I've been a fan forever, like I said, from reading the 7% Solution on. And you are a native of New York. Your mother was a concert pianist. Your father was a psychologist. So he was you a have... Psychiatrist. He was oh, he was a psychiatrist. Okay, then my information was wrong. That's even deeper. Um, as a minion of New York, though, you left and studied theater and film in Iowa. How did that happen? Uh, there is a fair consensus that the foremost place to study writing, certainly in the United States, is the University of Iowa, the Writers' Workshop. Mm -hmm. uh, whether you're Philip Roth or Gail Godwin or R.V. Castle, Vance Bourgeli, John Cheever, Kurt Vonnegut, it's a long list. Tennessee Williams, um, Richard Maibaum, who wrote a lot of the James Bond movies. These are all products or T 
teachers or one thing or another of the Iowa Writers Workshop, which began in the 1940s uh, under the auspices of a Midwestern poet and teacher named Paul Engel. And ever since then, uh, even if eventually some of these professors uh, and mentors like Howard Stein wind up at places like Yale or Harvard, they make their bones at Iowa um, and they still do. And so that was what drew you there in the first place. Yeah, I had a, I actually had a double major in theater and film and a double minor in English and history, I think. Yeah. And all of those so long things, ago, I can't remember. <laughs> but all of those things come together. I'm I'm particularly fascinated by how you take historical fact and historical and contemporary fiction and blend them together, as in Seven Percent Solution, where you have Sigmund Freud meeting up with Sherlock Holmes. In time after time, you have H. G. Wells and Jack the Ripper, and this this kind of um, hybrid of fact and fiction makes for real veracity in your work. Well, I would like to claim credit for this on the on the same basis that I would like to claim credit for everything since the creation. But the truth is that many historical novels, I think before mine, particularly I'm thinking of works by Walter Scott, or more recently, E.L. Doctorow, um, it, it's almost the province of what we generally call the historical novel to play around with at least walk-ons right. by Bonnie Prince Charlie or Richard the Lionheart or somebody that, that, that we, we mingle fact and figure. Robin Hood is, is the, I guess, the example I was thinking of. So, yeah, I do it, but I don't think I'm the first or certainly the only person who has, has done it. And I also should say that in the case of uh, Time After Time, it was not my, the, the, the story was not my idea. Uh, I acquired mm -hmm. the rights from um, another Iowa writer's grad named Carl Alexander, who wrote a novel, um, or was in the process, I should say, of writing a novel about Holmes and the Ripper in San Francisco. And he showed me the manuscript and asked me for some feedback. And I, I liked his idea so much, I basically optioned uh, the manuscript and went from there. But I can't even claim to have thought that up. Right. And and he finished that novel after, as you were making the movie or after you were making the movie, it came out. So it's not really a novelization and it's not uh, an adaptation, really, because you brought so much of your own uh, vision. This is true. When I when I read what he had written, he had called me up and congratulated me on the success of my novel, The Seven Percent Solution. And then he um said, uh, I have, I'm writing a novel, he said, which is sort of loosely inspired by yours. I have 65 pages and an outline. Would you read it and tell me what you think? And in those days I had time. So I said, sure. And I read it and I told him, you know, my comments, but my real comment, which sort of came to me in the weeks and nights following as I, lay awake staring at the ceiling was, gee, what a cool movie this would make and what a, what a cinematic idea it was. Uh, and for those of your listeners who uh, don't have religion, Time After Time tells the story of H.G. Wells who has built a time machine, not yet found up the, the nerve to use it when he discovers that, and you have to trust me on this, it makes sense, Jack the Ripper has used his time machine to escape the police by going into 1979. Um, and through another series of plausible explanations, he winds up in San Francisco yeah. and Wells believing that he has unleashed a homicidal maniac on the socialist utopia that he has predicted by the end of the 20th century feels it incumbent upon himself to 
go after him. Um, that's the the nexus, the the, the center of of uh, Alexander's novel, mm-hmm. and I just took it and ran with it from there. And then I gave him the script, and I said, "Here, help yourself to any of this that you like." So he incorporated, I think, a fair amount of the screenplay into what became his novel. Now, this is one of my favorite movies, uh, and it's it's so brilliant, and the casting is so great, and it was so timely because here you have the 1879 H.G. Wells come into uh, the 1970s um, and talking about free sex, free love, and women's liberation and things like this in a very... Com- comical way and it's a very sweet and fun and funny movie that grows very dark very quickly and i would love I think to think of it is i think and i preface this by saying that artists are rarely if ever the best judges of their own work and you certainly nothing that comes out of my mouth could be classed as definitive but it is my opinion watching it and living with it and thinking about it that time after time is really five movies Hmm. all going at the same time it's a comedy it's a romance it's a thriller it's science fiction and it is a social commentary and they're they're all going at the same time and every time you see the movie a different facet of it uh, seems uh, capable of jumping out at you and you go, oh, this is a comedy. No, 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 wait, this is this is pretty dark. This is a thriller um, and so on and so forth. But I, I, th- I like that about the movie a lot. Yeah, it fires on all those cylinders quite successfully. And it's very difficult to, to weave all of those elements together in a way that this seems to do so perfectly for me. An accident, I assure you. <laughs> well, it's a very clever accident that happened to shake hands with each other all over the place. Uh, I'd love to go back and see where you started. Was your intent to become an author or you did go to school to study theater and film as as well as fiction and narrative uh, authorship? So was there a particular direction you wanted to follow uh, and it was a happy accident that it led into filmmaking success that you've had over the years? Um, how much of it was a premeditated choice? Long-winded answer, because I don't think I give any other kind. Um, I Writing was something I've simply always done. I've done it since I was five years old and would tell my father's stories and he would write them down and then after a year of that he said you know i'm tired of being your stenographer i think you should write your own stuff and i've been scribbling ever since as far as film goes my dad the psychiatrist the psychoanalyst he was both introduced me to a term um which i find very useful uh, and I don't know if your listeners are familiar with it, but it's called counterphobia. Hmm. And counter, counterphobia is where the object feared becomes the object loved. Uh, I, su- I suppose Stockholm Syndrome is, is, a, is a sort of variant of this. But the first movie that I was ever taken to see, and we didn't have a TV at the time, so I was totally seeing something that was unfamiliar led me into this dark place with this enormous screen which had images of people that were a million times life size and i ran screaming terrified out of the theater uh, because they were going to hang the hero Um, and i was maybe i was eight years old and so movies terrified me but I, I grew up to, to be infatuated with film. This is a classic counterphobic response. And indeed the film in question became one of my favorite movies. And it's not that it's a particularly good or distinguished movie, but you bond with, I think a lot of things in the most important uh, and lasting way as children, whether you're talking about people that you're exposed to 
experiences that you have or art that you get to see, read, hear, whatever. And I had this counterphobic response to the first movie that I ever saw. And that kind of coexisted with my writing fetish, if it can be termed that, so that eventually they became really more or less indistinguishable. Um, on my website, for those who are interested, which is nicholas-meyer.com, I describe myself as a storyteller. Mm -hmm. I don't say novelist, I don't say filmmaker, I say storyteller. And I think to some degree, I am a believer in the notion that content dictates form, that some things, some stories suggest themselves to me in different media. So something I say, well, that's a movie. Well, no, that's a, that's a story, that's a novel. Um, when I read, for example, Carl Alexander's 65 pages about Wells and Jack the Ripper chasing each other through 1979 San Francisco, I thought that's a movie, that's a cinematic idea, more than I found it to be a literary idea in the sense that it was essentially a visual conceit as I understood it. These two guys in Victorian clothing pursuing one another through a contemporary landscape, which would force a modern audience to look at themselves through the eyes of these two Victorian gents, mm -hmm. in which everything they saw, everything they experienced would be ingested by us or perceived or observed as science fiction skywriting, uh, hot pants, it didn't matter. <laughs> um, and so I said, that's, that's a movie, uh, a movie I would like to see. So that's how I came to that conclusion. When I write my Sherlock Holmes novels, and I've now written five, and the fifth one will come out fall of uh, 21. They are, I conceive them as novels because I fell in love with Doyle's stories of Sherlock Holmes when I was, I don't know, 9, 10, 11. And I've almost never seen Sherlock Holmes movies that I didn't despise. <laughs> um, I, I couldn't stand Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson. I, I, I don't like it as camp. Right. You know, to me, when I read them as a kid, they were real. It was real. Um, and, and maybe it isn't, but that's how I got it. And that's how I try to write them. Well, interestingly enough, your, your first big success as a, a novelist was 7% Solution, which was indeed a Sherlock Holmes movie which led to it being adapted by one of the most successful directors at the time, Herbert Ross, who came from Broadway and, uh, and also worked very successfully in Hollywood. So what was your experience in seeing the translation of your book into the film? Were there, as someone who'd been studying film and intended to become a filmmaker, was there a frustration? Was there an exhilaration? What was your reaction to what you saw happening? Well, on the whole, it, it was and remains a very positive experience and a positive memory. For one thing, uh, I insisted that I get to write the screenplay or I wouldn't sell the rights. For which you were nominated by, for an Oscar. Yes, yes, I was nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> um, so I wanted to, you know, to try to protect my work. And I had long and pleasant conversations and what became a lasting friendship with Herb Ross, who was extremely, one might almost say slavishly respectful of the novelist's 
um, or of my contributions as the novelist and the screenwriter, at, at one point we were talking about something and I said, well, you know, you know, I've, you're the director and I, I am, uh, you know, I don't really have the, the credits or the chops. And, and he said, no, 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 that's a cop out. You can't duck that. You're mm. with the big boys now. And, and uh, you have to contribute and take responsibility for what's going on here, which, and, and more than that, I said, I, I want to be on the set. I want to watch the movie being made. And he said, I want you there. And so I was, uh, because I knew I wanted to direct and I wanted to learn, but I also wanted to be able to put in my two cents to Herb when I thought that it was called for. Um, and that's a rare experience, by the it way. It was totally yeah. rare. It was yeah. totally rare. Ned Tannen, who was running Universal Pictures, uh, wanted me to be there, invited me, allowed me to be there, you know, and sort of paid that part of my of the the budget's uh, expenses. So it was a treat. Um, I got to spend three days with my childhood idol, uh, Laurence Olivier, mm -hmm. who, who starred in that first movie I ever saw, and many others that became really crucial to my life. He was the star and the director of one of the greatest movies I ever saw in my life to this day, Henry V, um, which converted me into a lifelong Shakespeare addict. Uh, so the this is the only business where you get to shake hands with your dreams. Yeah. And I was talking with him, working with him, having lunch with him. <laughs> this guy who spoke Shakespeare from Henry V or Hamlet or Richard III is speaking my dialogue. How amazing is that? It was beyond amazing. It was beyond anything that somebody who grew up never assuming that he was going to amount to anything in life, which was me, uh, could have imagined, just never could have imagined such a thing. And yet here it came. So you got your opportunity. You wrote time after time. And was it like the Preston Sturgis situation? I want to direct and you can't have this script unless I'm attached as the director? Yes, it was exactly like that. It was first you can't have the book unless I write the screenplay. And then it was you can't have the screenplay unless I got to direct it. So it was a sort of leapfrog method of moving forward. And what I thought I got to do writing the screenplay, and I have problems with the screenplay of the 7% solution. Um, I became a much better screenwriter after I started to direct because I had a more organic understanding of the relationship between pictures and words than I did before. And the, the conversation, the dialogue in the 7% solution is very intelligent and it's very witty and sometimes it's even moving, but there's an awful lot of it. <laughs> it's, it's a very, it's a very talky movie, you know, and it, it's, and maybe that's okay for Neil Simon and maybe it's okay because the talk is good talk, but yeah. I wince. And one of the funny parts about making that movie was the writer begging the director in the editing room, to cut out speeches, to cut out words. And Herb Ross being scandalized and saying, what are you <laughs> doing? What are you doing? And I'm saying, it's too much. And I can give you, you know, examples uh, where, where the movie would be improved um, without, you know, and he, he was adamant. He would, he said, you're deballing your own movie he said he didn't say castrating i don't know why he said you're deballing your own movie <laughs> interesting well as someone who has uh, who also writes books and became a filmmaker screenwriter and director there is a huge difference between those disciplines and a lot of people who are great at writing books don't have the ability to work with a cast and crew to be able to communicate those ideas and develop it into what become it's a very social enterprise to be able to interact sure. with all of these people. So how did you find it? Because you had studied film and theater 
at, at university, still going from being a best-selling novelist to becoming a filmmaker brought a lot of different skills into play. How did you deal with that? Was it difficult for you or did you ease into the director's chair? Well, I didn't, I didn't start out wanting to be a novelist. As I say, I just, I just wrote, I don't know what I thought I was doing, but I was always doing it. I just wrote at Iowa. Uh, I was in the theater department. I, I thought I wanted to be an actor. I, I was not a very good actor. Um, <laughs> You hear about them, but you seldom meet them. Yeah. I, I was not a very good actor. Uh, but I did discover directing. And I also, this is lifelong, is that uh, I've always enjoyed people. I like people. I like working with them. Uh, writing, uh, with exceptions, is essentially a solitary enterprise. It's, it's you. You know, you have total control subject only to the limitations of your own abilities. But it is, it, it's you in the cabin. Um, filmmaking is a, a collegial and a familial enterprise. It helps if you like people. And it helps if you know how to talk to actors. And thanks to my time being an actor and transitioning to a stage director and also directing radio plays, but working with actors, I had some facility uh, to converse with them, to communicate with them. Um, and because I believe that it's a teamwork thing, I was always very interested in what the contributions of other people are to the movie. Hollywood filmmaking, at least at the time I was involved in it, versus European filmmaking, and I've done both, is very different in terms of the what the contributions of the crew are. If you look at dailies back when we looked at dailies and you turn, you know, to the costumer at the end of a scene and say, well, what did you think? And he or she might say, well, the seams were all straight. <laughs> Clothes look good. And I'm thinking that wasn't really what I was asking. Um, I, I was asking you to venture outside your fiefdom, your purview your area of responsibility and tell me what you think about what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. And in European or for all I know, other foreign crews, they'll do that. They'll say, you know, I thought this sucked or whatever. Right. Um, as a director, when I was doing it, um, I, I stopped directing when my wife died in 1993 and I raised a couple of children instead, yeah. uh, my independent productions. Uh, and uh, when I was doing it, I was interested in hearing what people had to say. I reserved the right to say no. And I knew that regardless of whether I said yes or no, I was going to get credit or blame because you're the director. Right. Um, and it's your job to say yes or no. Correct. Well, Richard Matheson once told me something that really stuck with me, and we've talked about it on the show a couple of times before, that books are internal and film is external. And you have done a very good job of making those shake hands um, without using narration or flat, you know, literary devices, but you've done it in a very cinematic way. Sometimes it's in dialogue, but other times it's in silence in the interaction between actors that they bring to it. But your films, one of the literary qualities that they have is that they externalize the internal. Um, Thank you. It, and I would love to, to hear your thoughts about turning something literary into something cinematic. You've adapted your own work and you've adapted the works of others as well. I think one of the things that I think surprised Herb Ross, and in a way, I, it even surprised me, was my willingness to be ruthless with mm -hmm. my own stuff or ruthless with anybody else's. You have to kind of be open. You have to throw away preconceived things that, you know, may have hardened like arteries into some calcified uh, 
um, configuration that you, you sort of daren't play with. When I wrote the screenplay for the 7% solution, I looked at it as an opportunity to improve on things that in the book I thought didn't re weren't really cool or didn't work as well as I'd like them to, like the mystery that they wind up solving Holmes and Freud. I thought maybe you can do better mm -hmm. you know, than that. And also because the audience already knows that mystery because they read the book. It's like when you right. went to see Presumed Innocent, everybody knew the wife did it. So right. no surprise. So I thought right. maybe well, I could surprise people who think they can sort of sit back and relax. No, I'll, 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 I'll do something different. Um, the ability to think in pictures is something that was very hard for me to learn. Maybe everything's hard for me to learn, but this one jumps out at me um, in the sense that being a very verbal person and having begun as somebody who writes, my instincts, my reflex is to solve all my problems verbally. And I started as a playwright before I became a screenwriter. And that's all about words, speeches, speeches, words, words, words. And I had to learn to keep cutting things down and to study the filmmaking uh, of directors whom I particularly admired, whether it was John Huston or Orson Welles or Kurosawa uh, or John Renoir that, um, or David Lean, um, Francis Coppola, the people, and, and maybe as much as any, and maybe more as Billy Wilder, just who yeah. seems to have made the best movie in every genre. I don't know how that works. Yeah, um, I wrote a, a script that he almost would, almost became his last movie, but unfortunately oh, wow. it, it never happened. But um, anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, well, uh, not at all. Um, in 1927, when sound came into movies, they brought out all these playwrights to do the words and some, this is maybe apocryphal, I don't know, but some playwright was wrote six pages on this marriage breaking up dialogue between the husband and the, and the wife and it was all very good and they turned it over to and it was all about the husband being interested in younger women, hmm. other women. And Billy Wilder stage the scene in a page with no dialogue man and his wife get into an elevator the man is wearing a hat the elevator stops at another floor and a young attractive lady gets into the elevator cut to the lobby when the doors open the man has removed his hat <laughs> that's thinking in pictures um one of my favorite scenes in all movies is a scene from a movie called The Sundowners. Oh, yeah. Directed by Fred Zinnemann. Mm -hmm. And it's about sheep drovers in Australia. Now, don't turn off this broadcast. <laughs> it is one of the great capacities of film mm -hmm. to get you interested in things that you never thought you would be interested in in a million years. And so I say sheep drovers in Australia and everybody starts to snore. So what is this scene that I find so interesting? Well, the, you have to understand the setup. It's about a family whose job is to herd the sheep from where they're raised to where they are shorn. This is in Australia. And it's a father, a mother and a son, and they're all very happy. So what's the problem? What's the agon, as Aristotle would say? The argument is that the wife doesn't want to do it anymore. She's been 12 years on the road with the chuck wagon, and her son has reached an age. She wants him to go to a proper school. She wants a house. She wants the white picket fence, all of which threatens the husband, who's a perfectly decent, amiable, good old boy, but whose attenuated adolescence is being obscurely threatened by this entire prospect. And so he's rather mulishly, passive aggressively digging in his heels against this idea. That's the situation. 
they come to the end of the trail drive. It's a cinemascope screen, you know, it kind of looks like a typewriter ribbon. Mm-hmm. And you're facing an outback train station at the ass end of nowhere. In the foreground, running left to right or right to left, are a set of train tracks. And we're looking across the tracks at the station. And there's only three lines of dialogue in what I'm about to describe. And the buckboard with the man and the wife comes in underneath us and stops at those train tracks facing the station. So we're in a kind of over the shoulder of the couple in the buckboard. At which point he turns to her first line of dialogue and says, you stay here, I'll get paid. And he leaves. And the woman is sitting in the buckboard. And the train pulls in right in front of her and stops. And sitting in one of those open carriage windows, directly opposite her, is a woman about her own age. She's a city woman. She's wearing a silly city hat. Mm -hmm. She's powdering her face with a compact, over the rim of which she happens to glance out the window and sees a woman about her own age sitting in a buckboard, staring at her. That woman is not wearing a sophisticated silly city hat. She is wearing a torn straw boater. She is not wearing makeup. She is wearing the dust of the trail. And for several frozen instants and sort of reciprocating close-ups, these women are staring into one another's lives. At least that's what the pictures allow you to infer. Then the train suddenly remembers what it's supposed to be doing, gives a whistle hoot and chuff of steam and goes off and breaks the spell. And the lady in the train goes back to powdering her nose and she'll never remember the whole thing. At which point the husband comes back, climbs back into the buckboard, looks at his wife and sees that in addition to the dust on her face, there are now two streaks of tears Mm. running down her cheeks. The eloquence of the camera. Second, Second line of dialogue. What's the matter with you? Long pause. And she says, nothing really. And he sees that something is the matter and he puts his arm around her and drives off. And the whole scene takes a quarter of the time it took for me to describe it. (laughs) Yeah. But I never forgot it. And I thought only movies can do this. Yeah. If this were Henry James, it would be 12 pages. (laughs) So when you did move into the director's chair on time after time for the first time, how, um, how big, a deal was it for you to adapt to the technical aspects of filmmaking that you're just uh, illuminating right there with that scene from the sundowners? What I didn't understand most, as I say, was the was how long it and how boring it is for lots and lots and lots of dialogue to play. My biggest, I made the same speech to everybody I hired on the movie, which is, I know nothing. You're going to have to teach me. And you're not, you're going to have to not mind if after you teach me, I still want to do it my way. Mm. If you could withstand that catechism, uh, you're welcome. And I, and I picked the best people that were available, the best people I could pick. And I was very lucky. Movies are like souffles. They either rise or they don't, and you never know why. You yeah. can have all the best ingredients and and it, and it just lies there. Uh, and other times you, you think you're working on something that's a total turkey, and then you go unveil it before an audience and people go nuts. Uh, and th- thank goodness in a way it's, it's non-predictable. Um, so yeah, I didn't know a lot and I was, I was learning, but the biggest thing I learned was that the attrition rate for dialogue between a screenplay as written by me, first final draft, let's say, or first draft, and the finished movie is 50%. Wow. 
50% of the words are going to go. Um, and the more words you can chop out before you start shooting, the better. Yeah. You know, chop them out in the writing, chop them out in the rehearsal. I like to rehearse. I've just finished reading the autobiography of Woody Allen, who mm -hmm. doesn't like to rehearse. And he thinks that the more you rehearse, the more spontaneity is sort of bled out of the thing. And, and I, I tend to agree with that. I don't think movies like a play can be uh, too, I think they can be too much rehearsed. I think it's a form of short order cooking. I wanna have a table read. I want the actors to know each other just enough. Right. And, and to have some vague idea of how this is gonna work. Because I think that if they do, and if they know their lines, it frees them up on the set to be spontaneous, to fool around, because they understand the sort of the, the, the frame within which they're supposed, supposed to be working. So yeah, um, and you'll lose words in those rehearsals. People say, well, that's, you know, can I do this with a look or something? Yeah, well, the chemistry, particularly your first time out, time after time with, uh, you know, Malcolm McDowell and and Mary Steenburgen and, and David Warner, who has been on the show. Um, it's just a magical combination of casts, so much so that your two leads got married. But uh, I thought I was just being a good director. <laughs> I thought I thought, boy, are you good? Those people look, really look like they're falling in love. And then it, it turned out that's what was happening. It sure worked for the movie too. <laughs> it does. It does. You can you can see it happening, and it's for real. And it's a it's a genuine love story taking place before our eyes. Tom now, Hanks and Rita Wilson in Volunteers. Yeah, they fell in love at the same time. Well, look how responsible you are for <laughs> the world of romance. I I took credit for it as long as they were you know happily married when. And they got divorced. I said, well, I really didn't, you know, know them that well. <laughs> it's been a long time. Uh, so the success of Time After Time, which was not only a, a commercial success, but a, a critical success in a big way. Um, suddenly you're handed the reins of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. This had to be a, an entirely different kind of playground than what you were used to. Yes, there wasn't. It wasn't the wrath of Khan. It wasn't anything. It was um, a, a, a friend of mine who was an executive at Paramount. I had a movie that I wanted to make, and no one was wanting to make my movie. Um, so I was just kind of sitting, you know, holding my breath in my house and saying, "Well, I'm not going to do anything unless I get to do this." And somebody said, "You know, you're being a jerk. <laughs> you want to learn how to be a director? You should." go out and direct. And what about meeting Harve Bennett? He's supposed to do the, the new Star Trek movie. And I'd never watched Star Trek when it was coming out. I, uh, I was in college, I think at the time. And I, I knew somebody who watched it every day. He'd always drop acid and watch it. <laughs> um, and I just I didn't get it at all. I, uh, you know, as I say, I never get anything till I'm, I'm the last person to get it, whatever it is. And I just saw these people walking around and Dr. Denton's and those cheesy sets and the man <laughs> with pointy ears. And I just, you know, kept going. Um, but I met Harve Bennett, who was supposed to produce the next movie. And he said, you know, he showed me the, the, the motion picture of the Robert Wise film and and I'm not going to, I don't criticize it um, because I think somebody had to go boldly where no man had gone before. Um, but I, I thought, gee, they're not going to give me $45 million to make a second Star Trek movie, but I bet I could make one at least as good with half that money and look like a hero. Um, and he said, well, the, the script is coming in and I'll, send it to a draft five, I think it was coming in. So I said, oh, you know, great, do that. You know, and, and I, I, I finally also glommed onto something that I really liked about Star Trek. It reminded me of something that I liked. And then it was, I realized it was those novels I'd read when I was about 13 or 14 
about the adventures of Captain Horatio Hornblower. Mm. And Hornblower, who was a captain in the Royal Navy, clearly clearly modeled on Nelson, his, his first name was Horatio. Uh, and he fought during the Napoleonic Wars and he had a girl in every port and all the stuff that appealed to me. Um, and I said, well, this is Hornblower in outer space. Kirk is Hornblower. And then I got kind of excited about doing you know, a movie about submarines and destroyers in outer space. And mm. one of my all-time favorite movies, a movie called The Enemy Below. Sure. Um, with Robert, do you know who directed Robert The Enemy Wise Below? again, yeah. Oh. No? Robert Wise directed Run Silent, Run Deep. Right. The Enemy Below. Robert Mitchum and Kurt Jurgens. Yep. Who directed it? You'll never guess in a million years. Tell me. Dick, Dick Powell. Really? Wow. That's right. He became a very successful director, but I never knew it was on that scale. It's and also the movie that killed him, The Conqueror, about with John Wayne as right. story. But anyway, The Enemy Below, I thought, oh, man, if we could do that in outer space, you know, how cool would that be? And then I looked up and it was weeks later and I never heard from Harv and I said, so what happened? And basically he said, well, the, the script came in and it's no good, I can't show it to you. And I said, well, what about draft four or draft three or whatever? And he, he said, you don't understand. All those other drafts are merely attempts to get a second Star Trek movie because whatever one thought of the first one and how much money it cost, it made money. So right. Paramount was going to, you know, try it again. So I said, can you send me all the different drafts? And he said, I can. I think it's more or less, you know, not worth your time. I said, just send them. And in those days, you didn't hit send. Right. A van drove up to your house. <laughs> oh, God. Stuff. And I am the world's slowest reader. I practically, you know, form the words while I'm reading. So I sat and read these drafts and then I made my proposal and I said, what if we make a list of all the things we like in these five drafts? It could be a major plot. It could be a subplot. It could be a sequence. Mm -hmm. It could be a scene. It could be a character. It could be a line of dialogue. I don't care. Let's just list all those things. And then I'll try to cobble together a new script that incorporates as many of these things as I think I can do. And he, he didn't look very happy. Um, and I, I said, what is wrong with this, with my idea, which I was pardonably proud. And he said, um, the problem is that the special effects house, Industrial Light and Magic, says that unless they have a, a first draft of a shooting script in 12 days, they cannot guarantee delivery of the special effects shots in time for the June opening. And I said, what June opening? <laughs> I had only directed one movie. I, uh, and he said, well, the movie is scheduled to open on June such and such. And I said, well, wait, 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 you, you mean that you, you book the movie into theaters and there is no movie? And he said, well, that's how it's always done. <laughs> oh, God. And I said, oh, well, okay, okay. Um, look, I, I think I can do this in 12 days, but we, we got to pick the things now that we're going to pick. And he and his producing partner, Robert Salen, they still didn't look happy. And I said, now what's wrong? And he said, well, we couldn't even make your deal in 12 days. <laughs> and at that point, I made my big mistake. And I said, listen, forget my deal. We've already got my directing deal. That's done. Forget the writing deal. Forget the writing money. Forget the writing credit. Let's just get on with it. Or you're not going to have a movie. There's not going to be a movie. And I, by this time, I was rabid to do submarines in space oh, nice. um and so they looked at me like i was crazy and my i later found out that my agent 
had once considered becoming a priest. And he told me he realized he was unsuited to that vocation when he realized he wanted to kill me <laughs> um, after I told him this story. So we picked, you know, the Genesis Project, Kirk meets his son, Khan, um, Lieutenant Savick. These were all scattered amongst these other things. And I somehow, and I, I, I can't explain it, I don't remember it, and I'd be lying if I claimed anything else. Somehow I, I, I wrote it in 12 days. The dialogue, with the exception of about three lines from Harve Bennett, is entirely mine. Hmm. But the, the plot and all the Star Trek science fiction conceits are not. Uh, and, you know, some mistakes were made, you know, Chekhov was not uh, on the series when Khan, the episode, the space scene was, you know, but I said, well, he must have been in another part of the ship. And that's you know, <laughs> a silly, silly thing. And I, but I just remade the series in my image, this nautical image. And when I hired James Horner, because we couldn't afford Jerry Goldsmith, I said, <laughs> Listen to Debussy, listen to La Mer. Mm. Um, I redesign the uniforms, make it look like like they're in the Navy, not running around in PJs. Um, and like that. And got lucky. And it worked very well for you. You were invited back in to to write on Star Trek Four, and then you later worked. I was on invited to to direct Star Trek Three. Um, uh. And I said what is that about? And they said, well, it'll be about, you know, Spock coming back to life. And I said, resurrection. Hmm. I, I don't think I know how to do resurrection. So I, I bowed out of that one. Well, your agent who was the priest might've been able to help. Uh, yes, he is a good point. I, I should talk to him more often. Um, <laughs> when four, I got called into at the last minute because they had hired uh, two writers to write this screenplay for four and they weren't happy with this script and they wanted to start over. And by this time they were racing toward starting production and I got a call from Dawn Steele and Ned Tannen, help, help. Um, and they all had this memory of the 12 day wonder. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I didn't make up that story either. That story was made up by Harv and Leonard, the story about the whales. Uh, and Harv said, well, I'll divide it up with you. Um, you know, you do the stuff on planet earth, the time travel stuff, and I'll do the outer space stuff at the beginning at the end i'll bookend it interesting and i said um wait this is like time after time they're time traveling to san francisco again can't mm -hmm. they go someplace else can't they go to paris let's go to paris mm -hmm. um and they said some bullshit about the whales wouldn't fit in the river Seine, and so we had to <laughs> do san francisco again but i i got to take all the things that i had to cut out of time after time and throw them into uh star trek four wow great and then again you came back for discovery a cameo uh, well i did six yeah i i, I co-wrote and directed six right the last one with the original cast a very good movie yeah uh, actually um, eerily prophetic, eerily prophetic, certainly in view of the last 10, the last six days. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a sad time. I, we, this will be on three or four weeks after the events that have taken place in the Capitol, but, um, I'm sure it will still be resonating sourly. It'll be resonating sourly for years to come. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be feeling those effects. Well, you were also involved uncredited in Tomorrow Never Dies, uh, the James Bond movie, as well as uh, Fatal Attraction, two things that I think 
may not be uh, on your IMDb page, but um, you certainly were involved in those. How, how did those take place? Um, fatal Attraction, uh, Dawn Steele, uh, Stanley Jaffe, who was, uh, and Sherry Lansing were the producers, and I had known them. Stanley came to me and showed me a screenplay. What do you think of this? And I, I told him, I thought it was a very good screenplay. I thought the ending was wrong. Um, and I, I wrote, you know, you have smart days and stupid days. And I had a, one of my infrequent smart days. And I wrote this four page single spaced memo. You know, I just thought I was doing a friend a favor. I, that was it. And then Dawn calls me in and, and I, I see ominously lying on her desk, which is otherwise empty, my memo. And I thought, oh, God, what have I done? And she basically said, we're not making the movie unless you rewrite it the way it says in this memo. And then she added, and yes, we'll buy your stupid fucking book, which was a novel that I wanted them to uh, make into a movie. It was about the IRA. Hmm. And um, eventually, it was very badly made uh, elsewhere, as a as a tele as a you know television cable movie. It was very screwed up. Uh, I was supposed to direct my screenplay, but that was when my wife died, and hmm. I I, I couldn't right. do it, and somebody else just made a terrible job of it. Anyway. They were willing to buy the book they didn't want to buy, pay me to write the script they didn't want to film, just to get me to work on Fatal Attraction. And I did. I didn't do that much. And the ending that I wrote, interestingly enough, they didn't use. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wrote a really good ending, everybody thought. And then I went off to India to direct the Deceivers right. for Merchant Ivory, and I was gone. And I, I got a call from uh, my former agent, the, the, the wannabe priest, who was now head of production at Paramount. He's been my friend for like 50 years, we were talking the other day. And he said, we previewed the ending and it, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And I had kind of imagined that Alex Forrest she was like Hedda Gabler in the sense that I have never seen a successful production of Hedda Gabler because people are divided. Half the audience hates her and half the audience, you know, thinks she's a victim. Uh, and the problem is that when you see the movie of Fatal Attraction, once she boils the bunny, that's it. <laughs> they just oh, want her, as, as Lisa Murkowski that about Donald Trump. I just want him gone. <laughs> they, they just want her gone. And so my ending, which was a very elegant ending, had to be jumped in favor of Ann Archer blowing Glenn Close away. But that was, you know, and, and uh, I didn't get credit. Maybe, I mean, I worked on other parts of the movie but maybe not enough to deserve any credit, except that Dawn Steele and, and Stanley Jaffe thought that I, and Ned Tannen thought that I had done enough, but studios don't determine credit. The Writers Guild determines credit. And I was in India, so I was long gone when any of this happened. And that's that how happened. I didn't get credit on that. I can't remember your other question. Well, um, it was about tomorrow never dies, but you know we're running out of time, and and I I want to be able to talk about the historical things that you've done recently, more recently about Houdini and Medici and the like, but I don't want to end this without touching on the day after, in the days when a television movie rarely had the social impact that the day after did. It was very rare. Television was the bastard stepchild of cinema. But suddenly here was a network TV movie that was not only a rating sensation, but it had a lot to say in a way that was rarely done on network television. 
Well, the fact that it was done at all was a total miscalculation on the part of ABC, who had no idea what they were getting into. They wanted a follow-up to Roots. Um, and Brandon Stoddard, who ran ABC Circle Films, had seen uh, the China Syndrome and started wondering about nuclear mishaps and came up with the idea of a movie about a nuclear war between the United States and Russia as totally seen from the point of view, not of politicians or warriors, but sort of regular people sort of going about their business and, and then they get fried. Um, and they hired Ed Hume, a screenwriter, to write it. They offered it to about three other directors before they got down to me. <laughs> and um, I was being psychoanalyzed at the time and trying to rationalize my way out of doing this because I was having too much fun. Uh, and my shrink, who never opened his mouth, opened his mouth and said, well, I think this is where we find out who you really are. Wow. And then I, and then, then I knew I was going to have to make the movie, which I also predicted would never get on the air. I just, mm -hmm. this is not going to happen. It was supposed to be a two-night event. And I said, no one's going to tune in for night two of Armageddon. Why don't we just like you know cut this down by an hour because it's obviously a little padded. And they said, well, you don't understand. We don't expect to make any money on this, but there's a limit to how much we can afford to lose. And therefore, the hour you want to cut out represents 30 extra minutes a night of advertising revenue. But by the time I finished filming the movie, all the sponsors had dropped out. Oh, my goodness. Except Orville, Redenbacher, Popcorn, <laughs> and Commodore computers. And so we had a network movie that no one would sponsor, that everybody wanted not to be aired. The New York Post editorialized that I was a traitor. Mm. Um, Brandon Stoddard got death threats. We're very big on death threats in this country. Yeah, it seems to be. Um, and uh, so suddenly I got to cut the movie more or less the way I wanted it to, which was a two-hour movie. It remains the most watched movie ever made for television mm -hmm. because 100 million people saw it in one night. And then everybody said, you know, the press ran around the day after the day after saying, did this movie change your mind about nuclear war? Yay or nay? And then came rather gleefully, as I thought, back to me to say, well, according to our morning after survey, your movie didn't change anybody's mind about nuclear war one way or the other. What do you have to say? And I as said, if well, that was your job, right? <clears throat> I said, look, um, I don't think people change their mind about anything overnight. And they, they probably wouldn't admit it to you if they did. Uh, and. I don't even think people know what they think about any of this stuff anyway. Uh, it's like saying, do you believe in God? People always have an answer, but is it really what they, you know, I temporized. But in fact, the movie did change one person's mind virtually overnight, certainly over the next week or two. And that happened to be the president of the United States, Ronald Reagan, who wound up going to Reykjavik, meeting with Gorbachev, whom he had previously described as the head of the evil empire, um, which they now are. Um, but at the time, they signed an intermediate range nuclear weapons, uh, intermediate range missile treaty. Um, I think Reagan almost gave away every, all the nuclear weapons, except he didn't want to give up his Star Wars initiative, SDI. Right. So, uh, but his, his, all his people were horrified that he had made that deal and discovered that he liked Mikhail Gorbachev and they weren't the evil empire anymore. Um, and we had that treaty, which Donald Trump in his infinite wisdom just walked out of. Mm -hmm. But that was mainly the most worthwhile thing I've got to do with my life. We haven't talked about Philip Roth and no. we haven't talked about any of the novels. 
which let's do this again with your permission. I would love to get back together and continue this conversation, which I am just enwrapped by. And oh, well, thank you. Thank you. So I appreciate you being here. And the books, that's an important thing. Five Sherlock Holmes novels, as well as the other and and the historical documentary series, your work with Martin Scorsese on Houdini, um, or Teddy Roosevelt, um, and your Houdini and Medici stuff. So please, let's do this again, uh, Nick Meyer. Uh, this has just been a fantastic hour, and I can't wait till the next time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.